it's harder to be as cynical as one should be about the way the world's going because you've got a stake in it. Not your stake, but the stake of people that have been burdened with life by you. You know, they didn't ask to be born, but they are now, and it's your fault. You, you hope things won't go down the pan too quickly for them. You can't just be cynical. You feel like you have to fabricate a glimmer of hope on their behalf. You are listening to Made of Human, also known as the Mopad, a podcast hosted by Sophie Hagen, who is a Danish comedian. Mopad. Trying to find out how to do life, but it turns out nobody knows. I'm talking to you from a haunted building in Luxembourg, and everything is happening at this very moment. I mean, some. The building first. So the building is used to be a military hospital and is now uh, and was then for two hundred years a prison, and um, is now like a a place where they put up artists performing at this very venue. So like all the walls are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. It's very spooky looking. Like I will, I've posted photos of it on my Instagram. It's basically the, probably the most haunted place I've stayed. Although I did also stay once in an old prison in Oxford, the Malmaison, and that was also scary. Um, but like where I'm at right now used to be two cells. Ugh. It's so it's so weird. Anyway, so that's the one thing. So I'm in this bed, recording this in a haunted building in Luxembourg. And I'm in Luxembourg because I'm doing a show tonight. And they don't know how many people are going to come because this morning there was an announcement uh, like a, in the city saying, if you can stay home, stay home because of the storm. So it's dangerous to go outside. So there's a chance I'm going to be performing to no people tonight. Now, here's my other situation. So I flew in yesterday and it was one of those tiny, tiny toy planes. And it was terrible. I've never been scared of flying. I was terrified. It was so loud and so shaky. And four times I thought the plane was just going to turn on its head. And also, like, I was, I'm always too fat for most planes. But this one, I was, like, way too fat. Like, way, way, way too fat. And it took so long before I could get their attention and ask for a, an extension, like the seat belt. And I was like, they're not going to give me, they're not going to give me a seat belt extension. They're not going to give me a seat belt extension. Shit. But they did. And then I sat very, very painful, very, very painful for very, very long. And, uh, and thought I was going to die. So... Today, so I'm meant to be flying back tonight, but then there's a storm warning. And I kind of have to choose between being a big boy and just saying it's, it's a little over an hour on a tiny toy plane, but I'll survive, right? Like it's, I'm privileged to even have an alternative. You know, I could, I could stop whining and just get on the plane and I'll survive it just fine. I'll land and then I'll be like super relieved and I'll go home and cry. <laughs> or I could do what I'm doing now, which is I'm looking up trains. 
because there are trains, right? So I could take a train like three hours from Luxembourg to Brussels and then two hours to King's Cross and I'm, I'll be close to my home, you know? But I, it's, it's money I don't have. Like I've had to beg my mother for money. I'm so fucking broke at the moment. But like she gave me the money, well, lent me the money, so I could, but the, everything, you know, I feel like a bad working class person because I'm like, you know, you know, we always, you know, we pick the cheapest milk, you know, where I grew up, we pick the cheapest milk. We wouldn't pay 10p extra for a, another milk, you know, and now I'm going to pay so much more for just like comfort. I don't know. It's a fat thing, you know, not wanting to take up too much space, not, not thinking I deserve to be comfortable it's a money thing like I don't know how I'm gonna pay rent on Wednesday so how am I spending money on this but at the same time like every single fiber in my body is just terrified about this fucking plane and I've never been afraid of like they wouldn't fly if it was dangerous the pilots don't want to die like I know this I know this Yet I'm looking at trains and I think if I made that decision, I would be so relieved. But that also meant I would have to stay another night in this haunted building. This very, very haunted building. <laughs> Which is really good for photos. I've taken so many photos of myself. I'm going to put them all on Instagram because fuck it. Fuck it. Right. So that's my conundrum right now that is the headspace from which I am talking to you. <laughs> Terrified, feeling guilty, in a haunted place in Luxembourg, which is actually a really beautiful city. City in a country. Luxembourg in Luxembourg. Anyways, so I'm going to be doing... The show I'm going to be doing, maybe, if people, <laughs> if people come, is... Uh, a preview of my new show The Bum Swing which now there are tickets available on uh, on Ed Fringe for the Edinburgh Festival I'll also be doing it in Copenhagen and Aarhus in April very few tickets left for that I am going on a book book and stand-up tour in May, April, June of the UK so I would love you to come to that my book is out now and oh my god I forgot to mention this which is a big thing um so I woke up, checked my phone, which I do as the first thing because I have issues. The first thing I saw was that Leonard Dunham had Insta-storied about my book. Leonard Dunham from the television and from America. <laughs> American television star Leonard Dunham. And you know what? My, my opinion about her has always been, you know... I support women doing things and I know they're held to a higher standard and they're scrutinized more than men in the same position. Sure, she's, but she is problematic. You know, she's done a lot of problematic stuff, said a lot of problematic things. And that's kind of the extent to which I've thought of her. Now I'm like, oh, she's great. National treasure. Love her. <laughs> great taste in books. <laughs> it's so hypocritical. I know that. Hypocritical? hypocritical is that that might not be the word anyway hypocrite hypocrite you're a hypocrite yeah hypocritical yeah sure 
Jesus. Um, <laughs> so Leonard Dunham. I can't imagine saying Leonard Dunham mentioned you in the story. And I was like, why? Why did Leonard Dunham do that? It's big. It's very big. A lot of people that I massively respect have gotten early copies of the book and they have, you know, posted about it. And I am, oh my God, it's so strange. It's just so, 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 so strange. It's like a real, I keep wanting to talk to the publishers and being like, you know, it's, you know, like you're doing this. Are you sure you want to do this? I feel like you're taking this very seriously and I, you know, I'm just me. Like I've written, it's just, you could, you don't have to do this. Like you can just pull it back and be like, we're not going to publish this. And I'd be like, oh yeah, that makes more sense. <sighs> this is very surreal. I wrote a book. You can pre-order it. That apparently means a lot. Uh, so you can pre-order it. And it doesn't matter where you pre-order it from, if it's Waterstones or um, Amazon or wherever. But if you pre-order it, that makes a lot of, that is a good thing, they say. And they were like, would you consider telling the people on your podcast? I was like, I've talked about nothing but this book on my podcast. Don't you worry. They know. So go and uh, pre-order my book. It's called Happy Fat. And it's about why it's okay to be fat. And uh, Leonard Dunham just loves it. She absolutely loves it. <laughs> so weird. Right. This is the Stuart Lee episode. So there's probably a lot of you who uh, had absolutely no interest in hearing my ramblings here in the beginning, because you were just here for Stuart Lee, and I get it, Stuart Lee is not uh, the obvious choice for the podcast, like, he's obvious, like, he's amazing, and also, I kind of disagree with that, I don't think he's not obvious, because I think he is a very interesting person, um, I just mean in the, in the way of, like, he's a, a straight white man, which we don't have a lot of, I mean, we do in the world, <laughs> in popular culture, but on this podcast, I kind of tend to... Um, I know, prioritize minorities and marginalized people. But it's Stuart Lee. He's very interesting. Very, very interesting. I've always gotten like a sense of... I don't know how to explain it. I've always wanted to talk to him. And I'm very, very happy that we got to sit down. Uh, it was in... I was doing a benefit gig with him and Hari Kondabulu and Nish Kuma. And I, so Harry has done the podcast before. And this, so I just said to Harry, like, hey, do you want to do it again? He said, yeah, I would love to. And then I said to Nish, oh, do you want to do it again? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. And I was like, oh, great. And then Stuart Lee was just standing there. And I was like, I can't ask him. Like, he's not going to say yes. So I kind of jokingly was like, do you want to do my podcast? And he said, yeah. And I was like, are you joking? Really? Yes. So happy. So this is me talking to Stuart Lee. Uh... Really interesting. Just really cool. I think it was really cool. I like him. Um, and I hope you like him too. I am going to allow you <laughs> to listen to the iconic Stuart Lee. This feels weird to say to you, but for anyone who might not know who you are, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Stuart Lee. I'm a comedian and a writer. I've been um, a stand-up comedian professionally for 20, 29 years. 20, 29 years for a living. 30 years since I got a paid gig. Um, <laughs> and uh, now I do... I used to... The first 10, 15 years I did circuit club gigs and now I tend to do theatre tours. And right now, this very moment, like where we... 
meeting you? Where are you at in your okay, kind well, of? Okay, well, I just I did I did a, a tour. I did um, I wrote a new show in the summer of 2016. I toured that until the summer of 2018. And that was the longest tour I'd ever done. And everywhere that sold out, I went back to because I didn't imagine ever being that popular again because mm -hmm. I'd just done 10 years of stand-up on telly. So I went back to everywhere. Um, and I, 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 it was um, so that I could spend the last 15 years of my working life um, touring less. I tried to kind of get have a big hit single Ram Raid. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and I had to sort of... I had to make the show. I had to make the conceit of the show that it was difficult to do the show because the news was in such flux. Because obviously, at the time I started writing it, no one anticipated us actually voting to leave Europe. There was a sort of broad. It was perceived that there was a broad liberal consensus, which there clearly isn't now. We mm -hmm. realised so. It was interesting trying to hold it together against um, a state of flux. And then um, the next one, I won't start writing it till May when I've got some little try-out gigs and work-in-progress shows, and then I'll get it back at full length in theatres in about October, and then I'll tour it, but f not not for more than a year. And I'm going to bite the bullet this time and do less dates, but in more bigger places, which is not something I really wanted to do, but kids and getting old and worn out. So that's exactly where I am. I'm in, I'm in managed decline, is where I am now. <laughs> I'm, sort of, I'm trying to eke out what goodwill there is. <laughs> until retirement age yeah and where are you at in your like emotional state i'm in the same place as normal um, what's what's normal well uh you know f fine yeah i've got i'm married with kids who are great so yeah that's it and try, try well what i've got to do is what i've noticed in the in in stopping stopping gigging for nine months is how um that little space between getting them from school, trying to do their homework, and getting out to a gig is really concertinaed, and it gets harder as they get more work and they need more from you. And so, I mean, I, I normally do a sort of five or six month run at Leicester Square Theatre, and that used to be at seven o'clock, but I've I'm doing the late slot, eight forty-five, which will mean the audience will get home a bit later. They won't be out till quarter to eleven, but it means I can probably do, I can do an extra six months of, of homework and stuff like that. And the, the alternative would be to do, a shorter run in a bigger place, but they wouldn't be as flexible about timing. So, it's funny. Like it's, you never would have thought that actually. There's there's lots of flexible things about being a parent and a stand up that are quite good actually, although when you have to go away for a long time, that's difficult. But, I seem to be able to make doing a long theatre run and getting paid for it, work with doing school pickups and stuff. Everything's about them now, really. You're not, um, you, you're, you, fit, you fit in remembering who you are and what you like in around them, but sometimes things start to overlap. I've started going to stuff with my kids that are things that I would have chosen to go to anyway, so <laughs> yeah, that's better. Yeah. How, I mean, when I, when my friend had a child, I could immediately feel that I was, like I would constantly project my own the way I was raised onto the child. I could my instincts would be to say things to the child that my mom would say to me, yeah. and I kind of had to stop myself every time it was something that yeah. I was like, "That's not a good thing to say." Do well, I find? say those things, but I, it's funny they like come back to haunt you because they're the same annoying things as were said to you, and you find yourself saying them. I, I, well, I, I try to do a lot of the things my 
mum did and I try to not do a lot of things my dad did and let's leave it at that <laughs> I've already I've already played with my kids more and done more for them at the age of eight you know than, than my dad did in sort of um, my entire childhood you know but it's a very low bar so I feel I feel I'm ahead but I'm probably not really would you say you have daddy issues not really no I've not got not daddy issues as such not in that way but he's um he just sort of he liked to watch TV, really, my dad. He wasn't sort of, um, you know, he wasn't kind of uh, proactive. When I tell them some of the things he did, they just find it unbelievable. I could go around to see him for a weekend and he would not get dressed, just be in his underwear for sort of two days. <laughs> just in pants and socks, you know. And I used to think it was funny. I used to think it was funny, but now I look back on it and I think, God, I couldn't imagine not even going out or anything or getting dressed and having kids. It seems really weird. I'm better than that, you know what I mean? I've got, I normally, most days, I will have clothes on in the end. <laughs> so I go out at least once. So I think I'm a brilliant parent, yeah. Is uh, having kids, is that a lot about reflecting on your own past and your own personality? Suddenly, loads of other things make sense. I mean, it also changes sort of... It, it, you you can't you can't be as reckless and and as a stand up. I mean, you all know this. We all get ideas, I think, from reckless behaviours. I mean, sometimes, and I, I mean, I've seen you do a show about this where you you get in a situation and you think, well, a, a normal normally you think, well, I'll get out. I, I won't go any further with this. But you think, well, what would happen if I saw this through, right? Because and at the very least, it's going to be an hour long <laughs> funny <laughs> anecdote you know what I mean and like Phil Nickel, I thought I mean he's sort of before you came over here but Phil who you'll know but Phil yeah. had a run of about five or six years of solo shows that seemed to be basically the stories of incidents which any sane person would have extracted themselves <laughs> from before they reached the sort of critical mass that they become you know a son. you can't sort of do that you can't sort of do that now because you've got a responsibility to other other people's lives so you can't sort of and although I, I got mugged in November and I even as it was happening I sort of found myself thinking how will this what will this become and if, obviously it's a it's a already the next tour is going to be two separate hours but you can kind of take apart or put together and one of them I can see that'll be the prop to build it on to be because I thought this is really interesting. As it was happening, I thought that's really interesting. I now look like a little old man with a beard in a woolly hat. I don't look like someone that you wouldn't mug, you know. And so it was weird to realise, as it was happening, that I completely misread the situation. I, I, I was no threat to anyone, um, and uh, that that was quite an, an eye-opening thing. So yeah, but I suppose that it affects you in that way. It also um, means. That the other thing that affects you in writing stand-up, I think, is um, it's harder to be as cynical as one should be about the way the world's going because you've got a stake in it. Not your stake, but the stake of people that you've have been burdened with life by you. You've, you know, they didn't ask to be born, but they are now, and it's your fault. And so you want, you hope things, you, you hope things won't go down the pan too quickly for them. So you kind of, you can't. You can't just be cynical. You feel like you have to have some glimmer of hope in things. You have to fabricate a glimmer of hope on their behalf. So it does change 
it changes that. Plus, um, I, I, I really like doing stand-up loads more now because it used to be the thing that you're worried about. But now, for, for example, when I was doing those run of seven o'clock shows, when they were a little bit younger, I'd do six months at seven o'clock at Leicester Square, I'd get them from school, do their homework, do their tea, if Bridge was working or whatever, make sure they were all ready to go, and I'd be out the door when the babysitter came at about 6.15. I could get to Leicester Square in under 45 minutes, most times. Then you'd literally walk in and walk on stage. And at the point I got on stage, I'd be thinking, oh, now some time to myself. <laughs> that would be the most weirdly relaxing bit of the day. Whereas before, that would be the point of stress that you're building up to. Now I think, oh, the end's in sight now. All I've got to do is talk to these 500 people for two hours. It's a piece of piss, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, the... The mugging thing, do you think that when you have the thought of, oh, I could talk about this, oh, I wonder what this could become creatively, the the kind of normal feelings that you would feel was like fear or, you know, self-protection or, oh, shit, is that, do you think you push that away or do you think well, you can I've, feel I've, it simultaneously? Yeah, I've, talk, I've talked to a few people about this since and, again, it's probably something you'll understand, which is that I think, right, we, we are put m most days of the week as stand-ups in situations that most people would avoid, right? Normally, a person's fight or flight mechanism would say, don't stand in front of all those people speaking, run away, right? And I think that, and, and, and you know, like when a person starts shouting stuff out at you in a big room, what, what I do, and I still get it on tour, which you'd think was weird because you'd imagine now people could check you out if there's film of you and they wouldn't get there and hate you. They wouldn't hate you. It would happen in club gigs, but you mm. wouldn't even happen at your show. It still happens enough, because I think people go on and on about how great they think I am to their friends. They make their friends come, and their friends have got some... They hate they've got some issue with their friend anyway, and you, <laughs> you become, like, the yeah. the focus for it, and they, they're sort of annoyed that they've been brought, and if they don't immediately get it... And so I do get quite a lot of... So I just sort of stand there, and I, deal, I normally deal with it really calmly. I don't do put-downs or... I sort of ask them what they want and try to I try to play it like I'm mad and don't understand why anyone wouldn't like it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think as I was sort of as the situation was escalating to the mugging, I thought my brain thought I was in a gig, you know. So I was going, "Why do you want to do that?" You know. <laughs> What's that going to achieve? <laughs> so I think that made it worse because <laughs> yeah. it's like you're passive aggressive. You know, I think it made it worse, and I would never, God, I'd never do it again. Luckily, a passerby stepped in, oh, and sort lucky. of as as it was going to weapons, I think. And um, weapons. Yeah, well, they were sort of threatening to get stuff out, you know, and oh. it's sort of getting. And I, I think a passerby just sort of into just someone saying something just evaporated it. But I think I made it worse as a result of um, the the uh, the false courage that we develop. Which because we have to suppress panic, mm. so I, I made it worse, and I and I think I think that happens quite a lot. And I think when I was younger, it was sort of useful. I'd, I'd be the sort of person if someone threw some litter out of a car, I'd shout at them, like I would when I was doing some club gig, you know, some like you're in put down mode, and they'd normally sort of panic and pick it up or something, you know. You like yeah. when you're a little old man, you just kind of 
think, fuck you, you stupid old twat. <laughs> and then you're like, you, you kind of, but you've still got the confidence to do it from doing, from doing stand-up. And I think it's a dangerous thing in life. It's great when you're young because you think, well, I've been in worse situations than this. I mean, I, I, the bottom, the worst thing that, for me that I was think was was me when I was I did about three years touring in a double act with Richard Herring because we used to do a TV show together and radio and stuff in the mid nineties and um, Avalon at the time Avalon carved out the idea of the student gig right it didn't exist before then they they'd send people off in packages of three or four for five hundred quid they would take you know fifteen percent so then you'd split like four hundred and whatever it is, 400, you know, 425 between you, and that would include transport and whatever you spent on accommodation, whatever. Um, but the, the, some, there were a lot of scams going on at the colleges, you know, and what Bangor University used to do was get half the gig, and then they'd sort of encourage their own students to sabotage it, and then they'd argue with Avalon that only an hour had been done rather than two hours. So <laughs> I mean, And this had already happened to me once before, when I'd been the opening act for someone and then they used to let the rugby team in at half time and they'd like but like, just make it unworkable and then the ENTS officer would go I can't pay you the full thing I'm afraid lads you know what I mean so when I did it with Herring I went whatever happens we have to just stay on for the full time because there was three of us in the you know and, he was right. and then this happened and they started doing that and I remembered something I didn't see it but I remember that Munnery had said in Edinburgh Simon Munnery when he was in a double act called God and Jesus at the Fringe Club in about 1989 people hated it and started chucking things at them and he said we'll only go if you throw glass right <laughs> and um which I thought was just hilarious and then people did start doing that so I, I said that or something like it that they'd have to do better than whatever and then they started throwing things that were dangerous and then the the people came on from Bangor University security to bring us off because they didn't want us to be hurt. And I was on stage, I remember saying to them, Herring will probably say that I've remembered this wrongly in my mind, because he's <laughs> correct that things tend to become anecdotes. That are so, But I seem to remember making sure, either on stage or afterwards, that the decision to take us off was made by the promoter, rather than us going off, because then that's their choice to, um, yeah. to, to take, take the thing down. You know, so... There's an example of putting yourself in a, you know, in a ridiculous. You just feel like nothing's going. And I always used to think, when stuff was happening, I think, well, it can't be as bad as that. Of like, inviting violence, and not and not being able to afford not to endure it, <laughs> having needing that seventy five pounds so much but that you, you couldn't like not you couldn't not do it. Keep you know? yourself safe. But that's what you said at yourself. You said suppress the panic. That's yeah. probably the normal. But yeah. do you then think? Like, do you then go home and then when, the next time you're alone, you feel all the panic oh, yeah, and deal with it? Absolutely. Or do you just, do you yeah, just like keep it down? Yeah, like when you just got out of a car crash or something and you think, oh, I was lucky I didn't k hit anyone. And then about half an hour later, it, you get it with emotional things, don't you? Like years later, you'll suddenly go, what the hell was that? And it'll really hit you. So I remember having, trigger thing, I had know? this horrible, horrible breakup and I had the thing in the middle of it thinking, oh, there's something funny about this. Like in the yeah. midst of crying and like... Yeah. <laughs> up against some guy who didn't want it to happen I was just like oh there's something and I, the next night I hadn't slept I was a mess yeah. I had to do a gig and I yeah. just 
emceeing a gig as well yeah. and decided to tell the audience because I thought they'll, yeah. they'll see the funny yeah <laughs> they didn't they it didn't. was very sad oh, really? it was a very sad story I had one punchline I was like well at least build up to it yeah with this yeah. 10 minute long breakup yeah. story but I remember afterwards feeling like oh I was not I was not ready to do that yeah. I had not dealt with this yet I just put all of this suppressed panic onto them to kind mm. of make them feel mm. it for me I was like that is not that's yeah, not well, sometimes things are sometimes sadly things are with stand up things are sometimes best that they're most unformed. They come out really on it. And what I find with stand up is you you, you you have the idea that's based on something that happened to you and it sort of feels real at that point. Then as you try to finesse it, it can get technically better, but it moves away from um feeling like you like it's a true story. And then so then what I find is I basically have to sort of scuff it up, dismantle it. And, and like mumble bits and throw certain sentences away or make sure that I never fix parts of it so that it it can still sound after 250 dates like it was a real like it was a real thing and then you can kind of switch registering to really written bits but it's a it's a it's a gift to be able to make things sound as true as they felt to you when they happened I think um, and it's a hard some people can do it naturally why well, I have to develop strategies for it I'm not really a natural performer you know I wanted to be a writer and then I didn't think I could be a stand-up until I started to see stand-ups that made a virtue of having no real performance skills and then I thought either you don't have to like run around and sort of look like you're having a good time or have an expressive voice (laughs) (laughs) but do you think anyone could because when you talk about like recklessness I think going on stage is Reckless. Like yeah. that is also your brain going. But what if? What if you just did this thing that yeah. no yeah. one else would? Do you do that to yourself? Because what I sometimes do, and I try to leave spaces in the longer shows for this, is I sort of do it to myself. I sort of think, what if I made me say this? What? How? How would I? Um, how would I then get out of it? Actually, I saw a thing w- with you where you'd said about what could people expect, and it was really interesting. It was like a sort of. Um, a person with multiple personalities, you know, she said, my tour shows, I will be able to defend all the material in it and I'll have thought it all through. And if something triggers you to be upset, then it is there for a reason. I've worked it all out. And then you put in, then you put, if I'm doing club gigs, I may have to do things that I wouldn't defend because they're from the skill set of running a room, stand-ups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's this third personality, which is the (laughs) uh, new material night, where you've said, I cannot be held responsible for what happens. And I I try to bring that third, the I can't be held responsible bit into into the structured shows, into version one. Yeah, but there's the other, this other things doing it to me, and I'm thinking, well, voice one will be good enough to get out of whatever voice three does to me. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, painting yeah. myself into a corner. But it is it's difficult now because people, because two things have happened. Is one is you, if someone's filming it or whatever, you can't you can't control where that mm. ends up or how it's edited or what happens to it. And the third thing is people, I think, have an expectation and I don't know whether it's reasonable or unreasonable I think we're in a state of flux about it at the moment the, r- the rules have been worked out aren't they about they they shouldn't have to see something that they don't like but I kind of think if you get out of the house you risk that but I, I but I, I know I but I understand the opposite point of view as well and I don't really know where I where I stand on that but it was interesting that you'd you'd broken it up into these three different well, it's areas a, it's, a div- it's a mixture between yeah. a lot of my audiences are yeah. not 
comedy goers, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, so they yeah. will come to me and think they understand. And of course, regular yeah. people don't know the difference between a club yeah. gig no, and a new material. You know, they have no yeah. idea. Yeah. But it's also this the notion that yeah. a safe space exists is yeah, so yeah. dangerous because that yeah. never because we just that never exists you know maybe if you read a book someone can have read it beforehand and say yeah. don't worry nothing is bad in yeah. this but when you're a human being on stage it's with what you said there about the pub people don't understand like you know I'll do like two years touring and then all the dads at school will go oh we're coming to see you tonight and it'd be like <laughs> yeah. new material night at the yeah. king's head or something and then you can see them sort of going, there's only like 20 people here, I don't understand this. <laughs> kind of thing. Like, they, think, they think that's what you do, they can't like... They yeah. Don't, it's, and of course they don't understand the difference between you're finished to... They don't even understand that you write anything, do they? Yeah, oh no, oh no, yeah. Like, well, I, I've gotten reviews for like the first ever preview, uh, Wake yeah. in Progress shows I've yeah. done, someone saying, I was a bit scattered and like know, a lot of it didn't, it seemed yeah. like she didn't know what she was doing. I was like, no, I didn't. That's I hope the, there's uh, none of them listening in <laughs> public to this. It's not, it's not aimed at them, is it? No, but that, I, I do think it's, well, for me it's important because comedy is like my my best thing like I love comedy I'm yeah. a comedian before I'm anything else yeah. but a lot of my audiences come to me because they don't feel welcome in a lot yeah, of comedy yeah. spaces yeah. so I do kind of have to first yeah. no, it's, a, it's a fun thing I have to tell yeah. my audience like this is what comedy is I have to defend comedy to my audience and then I have to defend my audience to yeah. other comedians yeah. <laughs> I'm like no no oh, they, they have a good they have yeah. good people they just yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's another yeah. kind of audience than yeah. the ones you're used to yeah I know yeah I've, I've noticed people, people 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 that can't find a way of criticising me criticise the audience in some way as if they're <laughs> as if I've created this thing that's my fault <laughs> do you feel do you feel like you're do you feel misunderstood by like quite often um well yeah but on but on the other hand I, I also get a lot of praise and sometimes I get credit for things that stuff that I've assimilated off people in all areas of the arts that you know, I didn't invent a thing that I'm sometimes given credit for. So, you, you know, I mean, yeah, I do. It's, uh, but again, what you, what you have to think now is that a lot of things where you get misunderstood, it's because a thing that was part of a two-hour bit has got... Well, there's a thing that's got pulled out. You know, There's a thing that's annoyed me a bit recently, which is um, I've been doing this bit live, and I, th I think it was in the thing that they shot for the telly, where... Uh, if somebody claps something you say because they agree with it, you know, they go, oh, yeah. And then I go, that's right. Clap the things you agree with. Don't laugh. And I say something like, did you see Stuart Lee? Yeah, was it funny? No, but I agreed to fuck out of it. And then I go on about them all coming out just to have their own opinions bounce back at them. But they understand it. My audience are really laughing at that because they know that for some of them that is true and they enjoy being made fun of by their friend, right? It's like making fun of your friend, right? And that's been pulled out by some sort of alt-right bloke on the internet who's going, yeah, even Stuart Lee knows that his own audience are oh, left-wing sheep that only go out. I go, no, I'm not. I wouldn't. If they were, I wouldn't. It's like yeah. you're having fun with them. And it's it's like being rude to your friend. You can do that. They're your friend. You can be rude to them. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it to them if I didn't like them. You know what I mean? It's not. It's completely the opposite of what he thinks. And it's just, that's just pulled out. And that makes me look like one of these anti-political correctness blokes. You know what I mean? And it's not, it's completely different in the in the shape of that two hours, you know. So that is annoying. But then on the other hand, uh, you can't, I don't, the alternative is to do what Jerry Sadovitz and, and Daniel Kitson do for different reasons, which is to <laughs> never be documented in any way. 
like to never be for there to be no yeah. evidence of your existence which is I mean I can't, the purity of that I think is it's kind of tempting isn't it fantastic yeah and there's a Japanese band like that in the 70s called uh, Les Valises Les Denades and they they wouldn't be recorded ever they thought that was like a compromise the very act of being recorded but then of course there's hours and hours of really poor quality bootlegs <laughs> doing the round instead of uh, the magnificent record they might have made you know but I can see that. It's, that's yeah. the only way you stop it happening, isn't it? You know. Yeah. So, and a lot of it, I guess, is also then you might have to work with someone who can tell you how to do it. Yeah. How How are you with that? Like the authority, I guess, is the yeah. right word. How do you feel about someone saying no? Do it the other way. Well, what with stand up? Yeah. Well, well, in I'll, t- well I'll, take, I'll take advice on how to film things, you know, and stuff like that, but. <sighs> With the nuts and bolts of stand-up, right, well, I, I sort of think I know what I'm trying to do and there's not much anyone c- can say about that. Um, there's a couple of times when Bridge has been really good where she's, uh, my wife, Bridget Christie, the comedian, has said, you need to do that bit like you don't understand the thing you're criticising rather than you do understand it and you hate it because it's funnier to be sympathetic to it than it is to attack it. And that's changed a couple of bits really brilliantly it wasn't like nothing was rewritten but it was just tonal um and uh when i was starting out people gave me very good advice and i thought they were old and didn't know what they were talking about so i ignored it and did the opposite (laughs) and actually now i can see that i might have got to where i am quicker if i'd (laughs) you know and, and and um the more you meet you know when when you read i mean i read a lot about the Victorian musical comics, you kind of read about how they did audiences and gigs, and you think, yeah, well, 1850's not very different to now in loads of ways. Um, so, yeah, but, I mean, the, the things that I take advice on are... Well, I, if, if there's something I don't understand where it sits politically or how it's perceived by young people, or people from ethnic minorities or whatever, I just email Nishkum, I ask him for advice, and he tells me what I am supposed to think, and then I do that. <laughs> that sounds safe enough. That it's sounds safe like a safe but now there's, there are things like that where, because I'm not out in the world, right, there's there's language and ideas that are changing faster than I'm aware of, because mm. I don't, and I, there's only, if you can, you can pretend, you, you can, if you're going to pretend to be, right, you can you can be um, a fifty-something um, out of touch, middle-aged white liberal man who means the best but doesn't understand on stage. But you have to actually know what it is you're choosing to ignore. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, yeah, you can do that. But yeah, it's like P- Peter Peter Blake said this, the artist about the Britpop generation of artists. He said you have to, you have to prove that you can draw before you're allowed not to so I think you can go I don't understand what it is I don't want anything is but you have to know what it is you're pretending to not know about I think yeah absolutely. Then, then you can then you can be ignorant you can pretend to be ignorant from a position of strength but you have to know you have to know what it is really you have to know what it is you're not knowing about you can't just not know about it but the audience must also be able to tell that you do know oh, yeah, right and that's the big I forget who it was but some a bigger comedian who did a who told who said that they had 
the advice they got was someone saying, stop pretending you don't know this because we know you know. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of the opposite, but it's it's yeah. this thing of the audience. No, they know, you know. Well, I wish they'd call out more. I mean, I had stuff in the last tour that it only really happened about one in ten times where I thought, I thought people would shout out, you know. There's a there's a, a, a um, female pop star from um, Gloucester called FKA Twigs, and when my gran or my mum was my age, someone called FKA Twigs, they wouldn't even have known if they were a band or a man or a woman. It's such a confusing name. So I was going on about he's done this, FKA Twigs, and you know, because the, the first time I did it, someone shouted out. Uh, it's not a man, it's a woman. And then I would have a go at them about forcing gender identities on people. And I I really wanted that to happen every night, but it only happened about one in 10 times. And like, there was another bit where I kind of had this thing about my, my I managed to contrive a way of my trousers falling down and appearing to not know it was happening, uh, which was, um, and you know, what I really wanted people to do was shout out, your trousers have fallen down. And then I'd go, I know, and I'd go into a long thing about, um, uh, about sort of clown theory and how you could be as arrogant as you liked if there was some physical aspect of you <laughs> undercutting your status and we see this in the work of Commedia dell'arte and whatever you know and that, but it's sort of you have to have it at the back of your head in case someone shouts out I said it to a famous comedian once who had a long routine about um, how there wasn't enough how the um, the uh, f shop floor space in Argos was massive uh, it was 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 small, but there were people were had loads of room behind the counter. And why wasn't there more room in front of the counter? And it was like an observational comedy bit. And I said to him, "Oh, can I tell you something about that? <laughs> it's because your your rates, your council tax rates, are done on the shop floor space, and you're not taxed on the behind the counter space." And he said, "I said, I just, I'm not criticising the routine, but I said, I just thought you might like to know that because someone might shout that out at you." And he went, "Well, I know it now, don't I? Like that? I thought, <laughs> oh God! But I would want to know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh someone, God, yes. Because I'd love to, and I'd love to know it. Yeah. So that if someone went, um, you, it's because of, uh, and I go, yeah, I know. Not stupid. I know that the council. I'd like to have known that. Yeah. But he seemed to think that it was. But again, that might be the perception of me of someone trying to criticise everyone all the time. But actually, it wasn't. I just thought." It'd be really good. It'd be really extra funny to know that, wouldn't it? To know fucking loads about it. Yeah. Exactly what the rate was per square foot or whatever. You know, it'd be really good. Anyway. But that, that's what you, interesting what you said about the perception of you. And that's kind of what I meant by misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah. If you often have people react as if... It's because you've had a few... Um, Beefs with people. There's been a few where you've not with anyone, not really. I no, mean, you've like done routines where people have said, "Wow, that person was upset about that routine." Yeah, I um, have. Yeah, yeah. And so every I'm time I've heard you, there's a couple I wasn't surprised at, but mainly I'm surprised at them. Well, that's uh, the thing. I've, I feel like yeah. every time you've def defended it, every time you've talked about it, yeah. you've you've seemed to be like, "Oh, but do you not know that I'm not that person, yeah, yeah. or do you not?" That's what I meant yeah. by misunderstood. If you're, if you think people look at you well, in a different way than you actually you do, am, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of. There's things where the person on stage would ha he would have to think that, wouldn't he? You know, that person would think that. So, but I tell you what the problem is now in terms of all those things is that sort of stuff. You know, I, I started doing that when I was a circuit act, um, and when I was doing sort of thirty date tours of hundred seater rooms, and during a period where there was um, 
a, a massive gulf between um, the sorts of positive reviews I was getting and the amount of people that would come, right? And that gap, that gap's closed now. And also, and I mean, the, the people don't really realise how well the tours do because I don't advertise or tell anyone, you know. Um, and I don't employ PR people to send things to Chortle saying how many tickets I've sold or what how far I've driven, which seems to be something they do. <laughs> Who's driven the furthest? And then they get like an article, don't they, in Chortle? Sarah Millican was covered 18 million miles this year. <laughs> like, like really strange like PR <laughs> angle on who's who's tri- that's such a badly organised tour isn't it it's not like um, it's a primitive thing but um, but then but then the weird thing is there's still there's stuff hanging around there's stuff hanging around from like 15 years ago when you were nothing where of course you can complain about everything because you've, you've you've got no status and then now they go how dare he say that he's just done quarter of a million people on tour you know what's his problem but the so the, what you have to, what's difficult now is to um is to, how, how do you um allow yourself to be uh annoyed with things when um really you should be uh comfortable so you, you have to kind of create more levels of paranoia and disgruntlement and whatever to allow that to go on and i don't understand why people don't address that to be honest because i when i see when i see People that I know have got chauffeurs and swimming pools saying, oh, I was on the bus and I thought, no, you weren't. Well, you, what? you know, I think it, it I, I kind of think, I always think what's happening to you is, is interesting. I mean, what, what I think part of the next one will be about is a real, what you might call, you know, a first world problem in terms of comedy, which is uh, what... Ricky Gervais gets paid for Netflix compared to what we get for, uh, but we're all we're all doing all right, you know that that sort of about that about cost and about about Netflix as a sort of gatekeeper of stand-up, which is still something that the Stuart Lee character on stage would be annoyed about. That scaled down is the same as you being annoyed about your boss at work, isn't it? Or your, you know, so it has to be like that. And you and, and for for a year, Netflix had one of my TV. BBC Two things on, and the description for the whole series for a year, and they didn't even notice was a tornado of sharks attacks the west coast of America, <laughs> right? And, it, and Brendan Burns noticed it me and sent me a screener of it, and I thought I'm not going to say anything. I wonder how long it will stay. A tornado of sharks attacks. Of course, no one's going to watch that. I think I'm, what? Like, who's going to watch? What if I'd watch that? <laughs> yeah, you would. Let's one do a TV show about. So I'm going to try and sharks. sort of do that. I'm going to try and do that show. Yeah. A tornado of sharks attacks the west coast of America with horrifying results. It's the description of Sharknado, yeah. which for some reason... So I don't know if... I didn't check, but I don't know if Sharknado had more acerbic, meandering stuff about... I don't know. But that, so that's sort of... You, try find, you have to find things that it's reasonable to assume he would be annoyed about because actually other things a lot of things are taken care of now I don't lie about it you know I mean I'd, I'd have to do something disastrous to sabotage my life to have those sort of crisis things that mm. is normally where you get ideas from so um yeah. 
you, you know you said that when you now when you walk on stage it's like time to yourself yeah do you think would you, you think you'd feel the same way if you weren't this kind of charactery person uh, do you think there's like a nice comfortable distance between you yeah, and I think the... so. and you can sort of you can sort of um you can do do and say all sorts of things that you wouldn't be able to normally you sort of forget actually i, I don't really meet people that aren't comedians or writers or musicians very often now and um, I'm sure that makes me an out of touch member of the Remain supporting liberal elite but you forget how nervous people are that aren't in that those lines of work about um, not about saying outrageous things but about just having just having fun winding each other up and you know and I and um uh, I do so yeah I think when you get on stage you can you can have You can have fun with that. You can have fun, can't you? I don't try to humiliate people in a room. I never do that. I hate it. I hate seeing it done, and I don't like it happening to me, but I do like to include them in things, and I quite like to feed them ways of getting the better of me because then it lowers my status, and then I can be nastier about other things because I've this bloke who can't even deal with a, with someone shouting, get off your shit, you know. So like, I sometimes like to defer to them and go, oh, fair enough, or let them have the have the thing, you know. But it's such good fun, isn't it? I mean, it's like really great. And I, in the last show where I had to smash loads of things up and jump on all these DVDs every night, it's really great, like breaking loads of stuff in front of people. <laughs> and, like, and like that, I used to, what was good fun about that was uh, I, I bought these really big, the, the set was made of um, all these stand-up DVDs that I got from CEX for 50p. I had thousands of them. And then I used to have to replace them as the thing went along because they'd all get, they'd lose the crunch, you know, and the crunch mm. was part of what was funny about it. But also they were very slippery, you know, and I bought these big metal boots so that I could really smash them up, but they were a bit high and I was quite unsteady. I quite often would fall over on stage and hurt myself and I, I really loved it when that happened because it's just the best thing because it's so undignified. But I couldn't. It didn't happen when they filmed it, actually, and you can't really fake it. You know what I mean? They can, you can't really fake it. But yeah, it's uh Well, when you say the distance, it is like, let's see what this thing, this thing will do tonight, and I enjoy watching it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't feel like I'm um, separated from it a bit. So uh, the, sometimes it used to be a bit frightening. I remember oh, yeah? sort of psychotic episodes in the nineties. I remember being on on stage in Liverpool. In about '95, and a terrible thing had happened in Liverpool that that week, and I think it was in Liverpool. And I remember thinking how awful it would be to accidentally mention that, and then I found myself up above myself, looking down on myself, and I was saying all these things, and I was trying to to stop me from doing it. And then I realised it wasn't it wasn't happening, and I wasn't saying those things. But I had a sort of sort of panic attack where I became this other personality looking at me and I lost about a minute of the time I don't know what I was doing in that time I had a kind of panic that this other voice would had kind of got the better of me and uh but now I use that I sort of let it I let it do things and I think I can normally get it back before it's ruined everything it might be from having been in the in the double act actually where in the in the double act with Rich Herring that was sort of my function was to um to bait him into into going too far and then to and then to then it would be up then I would get the thing back on track really but now I kind of do that to myself is yeah. it is it self-destruction 
Oh, is it? Um, well, it's interesting to see. It's interesting to see. Uh, you know, but people, I think audiences like um, the the. It's exciting the possibility of sabotage or failure, isn't it? And um, uh, you know, all stories have that built into them. In fact, I'm trying to make a documentary at the moment about a band from Birmingham that are still going at a seventies punk band called the Nightingales, and I've done about kind of six, four weekends on it with no funding so far. But um, this weekend, I sort of found where the bit is in the guy's story where it nearly all went wrong. And where he nearly was not salvageable his life. And I thought, oh yeah, that's good, we found that because there has to be that in every story, doesn't there? There has to be a point where something's at stake, you know. And... It was terrible, actually, because as he was telling me, I was thinking a bit like you would about yourself. I thought, that's the, about the 50-minute point sorted then. <laughs> <laughs> we just need to get some really horrible... If you could elaborate, you know. But, so, like a juggler, it's not interesting unless they, they have to drop something at some point, don't they? And then you think, oh, they're not very good at it. I, you know, And um, that's to be the risk of, of failure. So, yeah, I think, to some extent, if it looks like you... If you can sort of sabotage your show but know you can get it back, that's exciting for people in the room. Of course, what you then get is a review uh, in The Independent in uh, 2000, <laughs> which I actually did give up for a bit around this time, where they went, at one point, he loses the room entirely for about 10 minutes. He's so rubbish, and yet miraculously manages to win it back. And it was <sighs> the sort of thing I was, yeah. I was trying to get to every night, a point where everyone was going, oh, God. I'm like, oh, God. Oh, I'll tell you, I saw this done brilliant. I always seem to talk about this, and if anyone's listened to any other interview, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but the Cramps were this uh, 70s American band, and uh, they're finished now because the main guy died. But I saw them about the last time they toured Britain, and uh, uh, Lux Interior, he called himself, and he used to wear just a little tiny thong, you know, so he looked really vulnerable anyway, and he was really thin, like Iggy, like Iggy Pop or something. And he climbed up all these speaker stacks during this one bit, during this long instrumental bit, and then he fell off, right, quite high. Um, and then he kind of couldn't really get up. And he was kind of, and the rest of them were looking at him, and he fell on some glass and stuff, and the rest of them were looking at him, like keeping it going, looking really worried. And then he kind of, I was thinking, well, it's getting to the bit where he has to start singing again soon. Hmm. He sort of crawled to the mic stand and he just managed to pull himself up onto it at the point where it kicked back in to the verse of Psychotic Reaction. Everyone went, oh, yeah. And I thought, oh, that's a fantastic, like, exciting bit of show, you know, to see. And what a great, what a weirdly professional man to be able to crawl. <laughs> and then I was in a pub around Leicester Square about a week later and the people behind me was saying they'd been to see the cramps and he fell off the thing and I went, oh yeah, it was brilliant. And I went, what night were we there? And they went Thursday. I went, oh, I went on Wednesday. <laughs> but fair play to him because he, yeah. he made everyone feel like they'd had a, um, yeah. a moment and that something was at risk and at stake, you know. And I sort of think it's the same with, one of, that's one of the same things about being unpleasant or petty-minded is you sort of think, can I still get them to stay with me even if I am seem to be this just petty-minded idiot you know is a you know you can't you kind of again that's another thing that's misunderstood is i sort of want them to like me despite me rather than because i've been charming i'd rather that it was a reluctant 
begrudging approval rather than um, sort of people going, yeah, great, I love him. I wish he was my friend. Like, you know what I mean? But are you fi- do you feel like you're fighting a lot against, I mean, I guess being one of the biggest comedians? Well, no, because like your most own status. people don't know who I am. That's the weird thing. Honestly. Yeah, okay, really, I know like, what you mean. Okay, I wanted to go and see Bob Dylan in Hyde Park, right? And I, I've tried to... I need to go in the celebrity bit, right? Which is ridiculous, but I know I need to because when I went to see Neil Young in Hyde Park, I still want to take the kids. About one in a hundred people knows who I am. About one in a hundred. And they come up to me and they go, oh, I can have a photo. And I'm like, oh, all right. And that was about every ten minutes. And then all the people around start arguing with each other about who I am. Who's that bloke? Or they come up to you and go, should I know who you are? Because I don't. Mm-hmm. And it gets really awkward. So I've tried... I emailed Jonathan Ross, who I've met twice, but he's the most famous person I know. And I said, how would you get into like the celebrity bit at these gigs? Because I'm not known, but I'm known enough that it will be really awkward to be... And anyway, he didn't know. But um, <laughs> <laughs> well, he wouldn't tell me. He wouldn't be in there. But yes, it is weird. Like My own family don't really... are very surprised when I... Like, when I got... When I got... Like, in, I think the the Times had this thing with the greatest living comedian or something. Like you can tell, it's like people who say it's just as they think it's funny. Like there's been some huge (laughs) because I'm not saying I am, but to them it's absolutely incomprehensible that you could be anywhere. Because also they've they've not seen other stand up. They go and see you, and you don't appear to be able to do it either. they go, you know, I don't know if you know, but there was some really awful music playing before you went on. It made everyone really uncomfortable and angry, and you should probably talk to the venue about what they play. Yeah, I choose that. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Like it's sort of, so it's not really, it's, it's a weird thing, because yeah. you're saying to me, how is it to be this? But um, most people uh, don't know. In fact, here's a good example of that. About ten years ago, I got defrauded by, through my bank account, right? And I noticed at the last minute that all the... You know when you're self-employed, you put money in the save-for-tax account, don't you? All that had got sent to Hong Kong or something somehow. So I went to the bank, a high street bank, and they went, oh, yeah, it's our fault, we'll refund it. I don't know if they do that. And then, then they refunded it, and it was like a year's tax, you know, and then they went, oh, we've just noticed... We've been on the internet. There's a wiki. You're a f- f- comedian, apparently, and there's a Wikipedia page about you. I went, yeah. And they went, well, it's full of personal information about you. I went, yeah, I don't do it. I don't even know who does do it. And they went, well, we've been advised that you're too much of a security risk, so you can keep your current account with us, but you can't use internet banking. You can't use phone banking, and you probably need to look for some other kind of bank, like some celebrity's high security bank, right? So I went, all right. But I've still got a current account with this high street bank. So I went into this high street bank about 18 months ago to try and get a new card because I still pay a bit and I use it for cash machines and stuff. I queued up. I went, I need to see someone about getting a new card. And she goes, you can do it online Hmm. or phone up. And I went, well, I've been told not to do that. Why? And I went, well, uh, you've said I'm too famous to do that and I'm not allowed to use that. What? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm a comedian, and apparently I'm so well known that I can't, um, I can't use the phone banking because of risk of fraud. 
And she goes, oh, come back in an hour. I went, all right. So I went off. I went to a cafe around the corner. And the bloke that ran the cafe went, oh, you're in our cafe. Can I have a photo of you? And I went, no. <laughs> and then he took one secretly, and it's stuck up on the wall there now, which is really annoying. And um, then I went back to the bank when I was told to, and I was shown into the office of this man. And the man said, what seems to be the problem? And I went, well, it's simple. I need to get a new car, a new card, and I can't do phone or internet because I've been told I'm too famous. I'm a famous comedian. And he went, of course you are, sir. And then he put his arm around me, and he guided me out of the office, going, why don't you go and use that in-store phone over there? And um, I went to the in-store phone where everyone was standing looking at me, and I had to give my mother's maiden name and all this kind of thing. Well, the one person in the queue that knows who I am thinks it's a bit weird that they can hear all my personal details. And then I wrote to the bank, and I went, the guy obviously thought I was um, mad, a, fa a fantasist, right? So that that's the problem, right, is um, I'm apparently too famous to have a normal bank account, but not famous enough for the people in the bank to not think that I'm mentally ill <laughs> if I go in and tell them that I'm too famous to have a bank account. And that's exactly where I sit. I get all the inconvenience of it and none of the, um, none the, of the benefits. None because, of the VIP um, tickets. Yeah. So it is, you know, on the one hand, um, yeah, but on the other hand, day-to-day -day life is still... I, I don't go on anything apart from my thing, so only the people that like me... Only the people that like me know I am, or people often on the far right that actively seek out people to hate that they would ever otherwise never come across know who I am. So actually, I sometimes seem disproportionately hated because I'm a focus for all those people. So any Googling of me will find people saying that I should be killed or thrown in a river or... You know, so yeah, I know of, those people as well. Yeah, yeah. No, you have it a lot worse than me, I'm sure. And without any, without the positives. Without any of the positives. Yeah, At least but, I have uh, a bank account. Yeah, yeah. So a question that I always ask is, um, what question would you most want for me to ask you? Uh, anything. I, I don't know. It's pretty more like a, what I wouldn't want to be asked. But I don't oh know. yeah, is that like because you've been asked it so many times? No, there's not. I mean, there's. there's I don't know. I mean. Uh, I don't know what I'd like to be. I don't feel I have something I want to get off my chest to anyone. That's, that's good. I'd like to be asked what I think of the current situation in Venezuela. That's something. I, I don't know. Nothing really. Whatever you want. Is that a random thing, or do you actually no, have I an opinion that, about? Yeah. Okay, yeah, <laughs> just checking. It could be. A well, I think it's should... funny that there's a suggestion that you should have um, uh, foreign intervention in a politically unstable country that seems unable to manage its own affairs. <laughs> From us and America, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, another question that I always ask is, um, I guess bef before I ask you, in general, uh, you know, I don't know you talk a lot about. I mean, you've done stand up for more than thirty years now. You well, said 30, right, thirty years, yeah, just about thirty years. Yeah. What year is it? Uh, I've done it for thirty 19. years. Yeah, it's two thousand nineteen, isn't it? Yeah, I've done it. The first stand-up gig I did was two thousand and eight. Was nineteen eighty-eight? So, crisp, yeah, nine, back end of ninety-eight. So thirty-one years, I suppose. Yeah. So when? What? How old were you when you started? Well, I did student studenty shows. About twenty, I suppose. Twenty-one. Yeah, probably the first thing I did that was me on my own talking into a mic in a room in front of an audience in what was technically a sort of a club was nineteen eighty-eight. Yeah. And without, I can't ask this without sounding like such a cliche. 
But yet, how was your childhood? I guess it's my question. Childhood um, well, it was um, it was it was um, much more. It was very different to what people imagine. I um, I uh, I was um, I get routinely traduced on uh, the internet for being um, an example of a middle class privilege who couldn't possibly understand uh, this and that, you know, and um, uh, and uh, but I was I was funny enough. I went I went for the first time to the um, hospital, the site of the hospital I was born at about two days ago because I was in the town for something else and I thought I'll go and look at it and uh, it's over towards Wales um, and uh, so and it, then it's, it's a place that has no connection with anyone in my family, it's a place you would go to have a child in secret, you know, so, so I was born there, I was in the hospital for about two weeks and I was put into care, not for very long, then I was put into a foster place and by the time I was one, I'd been adopted anyway. And um, in those days, you 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 would be uh, you would be ado- uh, you know all, all most adoptions were. This was be- before the Abortion Act as well. So, Abortion Act went through April '68. On I was born in April '68. I was conceived summer of '67. So, the timings wouldn't work for that. But um, so uh, you when you if you were adopted, then the charities would place you. It would appear to me sort of in the exact middle of society. Do you know what I mean? They wouldn't want to skew you one way or the other. It's quite interesting. I may be imagining that, but it seems to me from reading about it that you tended to get placed, you know, not right in the top or right in the bottom, but around the. F- and um, so I, I grew up in um, uh, a little sort of. T- terraced house uh, without a garage but with a little garden you know and um, uh, with in a nice suburb of Birmingham called Solihull which I realised was a seemed really boring but was actually the sort of place that you could the houses were in a little square around a green you could go out and play on the green and your mum could see you out of the kitchen window you know and all the kids were in and out of each other's houses like in some ridiculous <laughs> Brexit fans vision of the past <laughs> when Britain was all lovely but it was like that you could go off all around the estate and everyone looked out for everyone it was brilliant then when I was about four my parents split up and uh, me and my mum went to live with her parents and I had um, a little room there about as, as wide as your <laughs> chest of drawers there uh, with uh, which was I, I also really I loved living there and I lived there for what seemed like years, but I suspect it was probably less than three years, might have been less than two years. And my mum did lots of courses and stuff so she could get a job, trained up for being a medical secretary and stuff. And my grandparents sort of looked after me. I went to school around there on, when I was little. Then we moved back to the little house that I'd grown up in, my dad had gone. And I have very vivid memories of it. Nothing seemed to have been moved in three years. Even his ashtray was, you know, everything was just, it was really weird going back to it. And the same kids that I'd been playing with would just come back round. And uh, they'd been coming round for like years, just on the off chance. And my dad had said I was out or something. It was really <laughs> funny. I found this out years later from one of them's quite famous choral singer now. And he told me that he just used to say, I wasn't in, you know, because he didn't want to say what happened. Then I, um, then I got 
my my I, I was the sort of kid the fir- the first school I was at uh, I didn't fit in in the way that the first junior schools I didn't fit in in the way that a lot of people that go on to be comedians didn't fit in and they say to you did you develop comedy as a blah blah defence mechanism and I may have done I don't know and so I think my mum was always a bit worried about where how I would get on in school I got my teeth smashed out in school I remember by a big kid and uh, then I, I, she put me in for an exam for this local selective school and I got in the top 50 I got asked back to try for a scholarship but I didn't get one, although I was given a part one later on. But um, we couldn't, we couldn't have afforded to have gone. What we weren't from that social background. Um, but my mum, I think, I think if you adopt someone, you probably feel a weird extra responsibility to them. So I think that because I'd nearly got there, she had to sort of pull something out of the bag. And she was a single parent on only her income. She found some weird loophole with a charity thing where I qualified as a, um, for a bursary for waifs and strays due to having been um, been uh, adopted. So I got to go to this private school full of um, children from a higher income bracket than us. And I never really noticed it at all. And I really loved being there. And um, the English teacher, Mr. Robert Mellowish, was particularly fantastic and was everyone's got a story, haven't they, about the teacher that... And he was the one that um, set me going. I used to write little plays in school and do sort of rubbish Viz type magazines and stuff. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, that was fantastic. And then, um, then, then, there, the, without a shadow of a doubt, going to that sort of school, a private selective school, um, that that's you know I got into Oxford from that. And um, so I have this weird thing where I. I have the arrogance of privilege, I think, that people that have had that have. And yet I also have a chip on my shoulder because I know that I wasn't really supposed to be there. And it's only really, I've only really worked out the extent to which I think this has informed me that I'm sort of arrogant and resentful at the same time. You know, it's like a weird, weird thing that you, you shouldn't have both of them. And I think it's through being put into this position of privilege and yet at the same time, knowing that you weren't and that you shouldn't really be there and it was a fluke, you know. And um, that makes a lot of sense now. And I, again, I only thought about it recently. I was up in, uh, well, 10 years ago, I was in Northampton. And there was a guy there I was at school with who was all, he was from a very poor background in uh, C- Castle Bromwich in Birmingham and he'd got a full scholarship. He's one of these mad genius working class kids, you know. And he said, he said, I never understood when I went round to your house how you could be at our school because you didn't get a scholarship, did you? No, I said, no, I've got this thing for waifs, <laughs> waifs and strays. And he went, oh, that makes sense, because there, so there was only you and me that, like, why are we there? And he said, I knew that he, he'd, he'd got the full scholarship. So, so it, it, you know, it, that when you say, actually, when you said earlier, is there, is there a thing you wish people knew about you? It's that um, when they go, another public school educated Oxbridge man lecturing us about politics... I want to go, I am that, but it's more complicated than that. But then on the other hand, you know what? That's the character that I've been dealt, and I feel I have to own it, right? So 
because you can't go in, can you, apologising, going, oh, I got, but I was adopted, so I got a free some money. Yeah. You have to be the person, and I like, I like to pretend to be that person almost. And I sometimes will say on stage, I think I went to Oxford actually, so I would know <laughs> more about this than you, you know. And and that, that really annoys people, but weirdly, I don't really deserve. Yeah, yeah. Really, I'm not really that, but it's quite good fun. To, to do it because you've you've accidentally you're allowed to do it. So that's probably the only thing really that I sort of think uh, you can't like you can't have a caveat at the start of everything <laughs> saying but actually this 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 and this you know I like it of course the weird thing is now my kids they are middle class and they are privileged and they are they are that and they won't have the um, escape clause that I've got they're going to have to deal with the guilt and live with it you know <laughs> When you went back to the hospital, what were your feelings about? Well, uh, it was difficult because I, I, I was there. I went there to um, this little town in Shropshire to meet Robert Lloyd from this band, The Nightingales, I'm trying to make this film about. He's sort of retired there. He's 60 this year. And it, it struck me that it was odd that I had never been there apart from when I was born, you know. And uh, so I thought... It was too good to resist, you know. So I went, I went to the front of the what, the building that was the hospital, which is now a care home, and I did a piece to camera off the top of my head. I went, strange to think that here we are in blah blah town to visit Robert Lloyd, and I've been here once before, and it was when I was born. I was born in here, and then I was put into care and adopted, and it's strange that you know I've my life began at the place where Rob's ended up living. And it's if I, you know, I said, if only there was some, there must be some way of making this have some contrived emotional subtext to this documentary. And then I got them to shoot loads of those stupid bits that, like you have in um, Who Do You Think You Are? I sort of walked really slowly down <laughs> to the hospital, like, looking around, and then I took my hat off and sort of held it like to my heart. And then I put it, in my, put it back on, and I, I walked away, back past the camera, sort of shaking my head like I was really thinking about how meaningful it was. So basically, I managed to make that really quite profound experience into a sort of sarcastic joke because the yeah, comedian say, part of me couldn't resist suppressing the, the, panic? the cliche of it. Yeah? The cliche of orphan goes back to the fuck off. You know what I mean? So you, actually, if I'd thought about it, I might have been really moved by it. But luckily, I haven't. Luckily, I was able to ruin that and make it into a sort of parody of BBC television instead. And uh, you've still not sat with it alone and gone, no, it was actually a... Well, maybe when I see it, when I You'll see feel the it, film, yeah. you know. So the last, the last question I always ask is, um, ironically, a bit about that. You have to imagine you're in the delivery room yeah. and you have just been born, mm. okay? And you, right now, are holding yourself as a tiny baby. And Tiny Tiny Sudley is crying because he's just come from the womb and he is terrified because there's lights and sounds and it's very scary. And is this life? Is this what life's going to be like? That yeah. is horrifying. So yeah. he's crying and crying. But you know how the next, what do you say, what, 50? 50 now. Yeah. 50. Yeah, yeah. Next 50 years of his life, you know how the next 50 years of his life is going to go. You know exactly what's going to happen. You know there will be lights and sounds, yeah, but it yeah. won't be lights and sounds. There'll be other things. And you can say something to him. You cannot change the future. So you can't give advice or tell him right, to right, do anything. Right. But for this moment, you get to tell him what life's going to be like. 
uh, and you could say basically anything to make him stop crying if that's what you want. What would you say to teeny tiny baby? I'm pretty tame about all the things that I've seen or done that I feel have been just the best things ever. You know, like probably say the fall at the Elephant Fair Festival in Cornwall in 1984 is going to be really good. As is um, as is uh, camping by Pistol Radier Waterfall in about 1987 in, uh, you know, I'd sort of go through all these things, like those 10 things that are just the best things that um, that you go back to when you when you need to um, get yourself out of something. I mean, I can't, I can't believe what, uh, you know, all the time things come up, you know. I was moaning about something the other day and um, Bridge pointed out that um, before Christmas, there's an album I love by this folk rock band from the 70s called Trees, and they got back together, and I'd written a lot about it, about that album for magazines. I did sleeve notes for it, and um, and I'd kind of done a, I'd done a sort of, I'd done a version of that song on an on an album of, of unusual people singing folk songs, and they said, "Do you want to come and sing it when we when we do the reunion?" So I had to go to rehearsals with like half the original guys and work out a guitar part, and then do it on the night. It's just, it's insane. I spent thirty years listening to that, and then got asked to go and. To go and see it, and I know like the comparable thing for John Bishop is that he got to play football with Liverpool FC or something. <laughs> I got to perform a folk song in front of about seventy people. In a, in a, but it, you know, things like that. It's just it's been incredible. Like and I, you know, and um, uh, you know, it's been incredible. And all the things that doing stand ups opened up, and all the kinds of people you've met. I tell him he has to be a comedian, and he's lucky to be able to start it in the eighties when there weren't so many people doing it, so you could get. <laughs> You could get more gigs more quickly. It's easy now. It's really hard now. I wouldn't do it now. God, get a job. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Do you still need to be reminded of those things? Hmm? Do you still need to be reminded of those things? Do you yeah, I think so, yeah. Because, um, you know, yeah, I do. I mean, sometimes things seem... Sometimes things seem a bit insurmountable. I mean, you know, I, look, it's a luxurious worry to have, but I... I don't know really I, I can think of material for the next tour but I can't think tonally where it sits it's partly because some of the things you've talked about like what can the comedian who has been described as by one journalist in one paper but as the best living what, yeah. what can he say right what can he live I can't live up to that and also what Given that I used to be able to have, I, I used to be able to have fun with essentially being a liberal, but pretending not to be, occasionally because there appeared to be a liberal consensus. What's happened since I last wrote a show is that liberal consensus is under attack to the point where it doesn't really exist. People on the right who record videos on YouTube in their mum's cellars and look all sallow-faced, they like to think it exists and it's preventing them from getting work or something. But it doesn't, does it? It's shot to shit. You know, and um, so I don't really know. As a comic, you've got to be sort of in opposition to something, and I don't really know where I fit now. Because last time I wrote a show, we weren't supposed to be openly racist to people. You know, like Liam Neeson today has said he accidentally God. was. You know, we, yeah. we weren't. We weren't. We weren't. You wouldn't have had mainstream politicians making alliances with extremist groups to try and get their agenda over the line. It's, it's unthinkable what's happened in, in three years in Europe and America, and, uh, and and so I don't know where 
a 50-year-old um, champagne socialist, which is what I am, who is the product of a 1980s politically correct liberal education. I don't know what I say or where I fit. And, I, and I'm, you know, a lot of these kind of commentators on the internet, like the bloke that writes Mad Max, comics bloke, he's always having a go at me and saying I'm obsolete and... Milo Yiannopoulos is the future. Is that what he's called? Yeah, no, yeah, he's yeah. The future yeah, and, yeah. and I sort of think, yeah, I kind of am actually, and I need to sort of own that somehow. I don't really know how to do it. I don't, um, but one of the things I always thought was funny about Jeremy Hardy, to be fair, um, was all the things other people have said were funny about him, I agree with. But there was another thing I thought was funny about him, and I tried to talk to him about it once, and I think he thought I was trying to have a go at him. Again, how many stories are like that? I know. And what it is, is that <laughs> what he wanted. What he wanted, a socialist utopia, was unattainable, right? Um, you might get somewhere close to it, but you would never get the society that he wanted. And I thought, I think all clowns and all comedians have to be a tragic figure ultimately. They have to be in, and I felt his tragedy, why he was a tragic and therefore funny figure, was because the gulf between what was going to happen and what he wanted was insurmountable. And therefore, he wasn't a powerful figure, he was a sort of slightly amusingly pathetic figure because the things were unattainable and I did mean that in a positive way but obviously it was taken as some insult to him but I meant it like theoretically that's what if you were to apply comedy theory to it that was otherwise he's an arrogant bloke who's right about everything isn't he but if you know he's an arrogant bloke who's right about everything and it will never happen what he wants then it's funny because it's sad like <laughs> it has to be the clown theorists say you know, all comedy is about people trying to stand upright and maintain their dignity and not fall over, but they lose their dignity in the end. And that was, to me, that was the the, the core of why Jeremy Hardy was funny, was this other thing, not that he was quick-witted on the panel show or whatever, but that the, the character of him, that bloke, was never going to get that. So it was like a tragically funny thing. But I can see why, if you're explaining that to someone... <laughs> they think you're trying to basically say their shit, which I wasn't. Other another disaster. <laughs> another disaster. Um, thank you so much for doing this. All right, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, that was it. That's it. Yeah, I just wanted to give uh, people who were just listening for Stuart Lee a chance to turn it off <laughs> because they don't care about me it's just fair enough it's strange i feel like with this with this episode i was talking to a bigger audience but not necessarily my people which is fine that's fine but it was a bit um i had it in the back of my head like people will listen to this who who don't necessarily like me <laughs> which is fine that's probably i mean it's fine it's fine <laughs> I'm in a haunted building. I don't. I can't care. I did this when I went into this building. I, th I was like, I'm. I was like, this is silly, and I know this is silly, but maybe it's not silly. And I um, I just started talking when I walked in, and I was like, I'm sorry, what happened to you? And I, I hope you know that I come here with good energy, and um, that I hope, like, I'm one of the people who hopefully tries to make the world a better place. And, you know, I, I respect you and I hope you won't um, make me feel bad. And <laughs> I was like just talking to these ghosts. 
that may or may not be here. And I was like, oh my God, you've probably experienced some really bad things. I'm sorry about that. That never should have happened to you. And this is where my psychologist would be like, who did you really speak to? <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, one of my psychologists, like I have two therapists now. I don't know the difference between psychologists and therapists, but I have two of them now. Very intense. Lots of intense stuff happening in my head. And I was going to say I'm fine, but offs, I'm not fine. That's why I'm seeing two therapists. But I will be fine because they're really good. Like I can feel it working. It's some proper intense stuff. Like it's, I used to look forward to going to therapy because it was like a nice hour where I got to talk about myself. Now I'm dreading it because it's gonna hurt. <sighs> so anyways, I, uh, I think I'll take the train tomorrow. I don't think I'm going to fly tonight. But I should probably talk to my, <laughs> my, my therapists about that. So quickly want to say uh, Secret Dinosaur Cult is my other podcast. It's a queer, LGBTQIA plus um, comedy podcast about trauma and daddy issues uh, by me and Jody Mitchell. Now more or less officially two non-binary people. Oh, that still feels weird to say, doesn't it? Genderqueer people, two non-women women, like two non-men non and non-women people. Oh, God. You should listen to it. Secret Dinosaur Cult is very, very funny. And we do live shows. So go to secretdinosaurcult.com to see where we're doing live shows. Uh, we're doing them all over the place. We're coming to Birmingham soon, where, <laughs> where we're in a 900-seater. <laughs> Please get tickets for that. Oh my god, 900 Caesar. Uh, follow Made of Human on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, the website is madeofhumanpodcast.com. You can get t-shirts and merch and stuff. And you can support the podcast financially. Uh, a lot of you are very, very sweet. You will message me and say like, oh, I can't afford it this month. And that's absolutely fine. It's so fine. I like... I have 33 pounds in my account. I can't pay rent. Like, I totally get it. Totally get it. Uh, which also just means that I rely a lot on your support. I really do. It's, um, I'm, I'm, and I'm so, so, I'm so grateful. I'm so, so grateful. I'm so grateful. And I'm so happy that you like it. I'm, it's gonna be, um, I'm gonna make a few changes. As in, I'm gonna try real hard to get, uh, I don't know yet, and no, no bad changes. Like I'm just, I'm gonna make it better. I want to make it better, and that's something I can only do because you support the podcast. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And the people who give me one-off donations, uh, which you could do via PayPal on my website, on madeofhumanpodcast.com, that also means a lot. I know I focus a lot on the patrons, um, but that's just because you can always predict it, ish how many there are going to be, and that means the world. But the one-off donations is just like, oh my God, thank you. It's so nice. It's, it helps so much. And the patrons, uh, you're incredible. If you don't know this yet, if you uh, are a patron, you get extra content, so you get extra bits and pieces from the people that I chat to, uh, which is comes out every Saturday on Patreon only. So you get that. I'm now going to thank the people who give $5 or more. You can become a patron on patreon.com forward slash 
Mopod, M-O-H-P-O-D. And uh, if you give $5 or more, you become a friend of the podcast, meaning that I will say your name out loud now. So I want to say a huge, huge, huge thank you to... Now, the list this time starts... <laughs> With someone who, and I don't know if this counts, okay, so you may know that we have a little competition between who, uh, which names we have the most of, and someone, and I don't know if this is cheating, but you know, you, you remember um, Lily and Harry French, they were on the list? Lily and Harry French have now changed their name to three Lilies, at least five Harrys, but no Toby's French. <clears throat> Now, a lot of things is happening in that first patron name. I don't know if you can, if you can just put your entire family <laughs> in as patrons. I'm not sure if that works. Um, the Toby French thing, is, I don't remember what I've said about Toby French, but <laughs> I'm not going to repeat anything because I don't remember how much I've said. I think I'm going to have to count this as one Lily and one Harry French. But I appreciate, I appreciate the effort to win. Right, so we're going to start with Lily and Harry French. Sorry to the two Lilies and four Harrys that I'm leaving out. Andrea Papillon, Andy Walker, Autumn Blue Sky, Barry Norton, Caitlin, Kat Posey, Claire McCowlin, Don oh, Connor O'Donovan, Danny Beckett, Daniel Reifersheet, Daphne Fanger, Eleanor, Emma, Ch Emma Appleton, Emma Chan, that's the two Emmas, Fenella Dunn, Privacy Osiris, Aurora Terra Tops. I don't think we'll get many of those. Fiona Richardson, George Pearson, Harry Van Dyke, Harry Minnett. I mean, Harold, Harry, we have two Harrys then. Helena Thomas, Ida Sergolasen, Inga Ellingsen, Jane Mahoney, Joe C., Kathy Draxelbauer, Katie Hatfield, Katrina Engelsen. See, I think Katie, Kathy, Katie, and Katrine. It's close to each other, isn't it? Kim Williams, Kirsten Davidson, Queen T, Maury Fraser, Mansour Mir, Marbles Lost, Olivia Robson, <clears throat> Paul Swaddle, Perpetual Motion, F Pierre Fineu, Rachel Hempsey, Rachel Furley, Rachel Phillips. That's the three Rachels still winning, I think. Ooh, well, let's see about that. Ragdoll, Robert Knowles, Robin Kappa, Russell Hughes, and then we have Sarah Ferreira Igerset, Sarah Allett, and Sarah Plum... Pl oh, oh, she... She told me how to pronounce this. Plume. Plumer? 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 I'll look it up. I'm sorry, Sarah. I remember you telling me, and then I said I would try and remember. Anyways, the point is, we have three Sarahs. So now we have the Rachels and the Sarahs. Oh, my God. If we get one more Rachel or one more Sarah, one of you will have won. Oh, and then we have Saskia Papadakis and Sheena Machette Cole and Susie Tyler. This is exciting. Thank you, Sarah Plumer. Plumer? Plumer. Well, Plumer would be with a B, wouldn't it? This is Plumer. Hmm. Either way, three Sarahs, three Rachels. Things are getting exciting. Take that, three Lilies. <laughs> Sorry, Lily. <laughs> right. I'm being silly now. It's because I'm uh, in a haunted house. Did I mention that? It's a very, very, very long intro and outro, this. But, so I should probably say a huge thank you to Dave Pickering for producing this episode, to Harriet Brain for writing and recording the jingle, and to Linda Brinkhouse for the logo. I will speak to you next week. Bye. Oh, oh.